The Thirteenth Guardian Written by K. M. Lewis Narrated by Tom Gallagher Prologue There is a truth about our history that the sentinels of time have tried desperately to pass on to us. A truth so dreadful, it has been shrouded in our traditions and religions as mythology. A truth that causes men's hearts to fail them for fear. Excerpt from Poetic Edda, Norse Mythology of Ragnarok The wolves, Skoll and Hato, who have hunted the sun and the moon through the skies since the beginning of time, will at last catch their prey. The stars, too, will disappear, leaving nothing but a black void in the heavens. Yggdrasil, the great tree that holds the cosmos together, will tremble and the mountains will fall to the ground. Jormungand, the mighty serpent who dwells at the bottom of the ocean, will rise from the depths, spilling the seas over all the earth. Fenrir, with fire blazing from his eyes and nostrils, will run across the earth, with his lower jaw on the ground and his upper jaw against the top of the sky, devouring everything in his path. The dome of the sky will split, and from the crack shall emerge the fire giants from Muspelheim. An ominous horn will ring out. This will be Heimdall, the divine sentry, blowing the Yaller horn to announce the arrival of the moment the gods have feared. Excerpt from the Theogony of Hesiod, 700 B.C. The Greek Epic of the Battle of Zeus and Typhon after Zeus had driven the Titans out of heaven, Gaia bore the youngest of her children, Typhon, and from his shoulders grew a hundred heads of a dragon. He was a giant so tall that his head touched the stars. He was the father of all monsters, and from his eyes fire glittered and flared. Inside each of the heads were voices that threw out the sounds of a bellowing bull a wonder to listen to, and a whistle that the tall mountains echoed. Typhon, feared by all gods, would have become master of the gods and of mortals, but Zeus, the father of gods and men, gave a heavy clap of thunder, so that the earth felt a grisly reverberation across the heaven above, the sea, and the underground chambers. And great Olympus was shaken under the immortal feet of the master, as he moved and the earth groaned beneath him. The heat and blaze from Zeus and Typhon was on the sea, from the thunder and lightning of Zeus, and from the flame of the monster. The sea boiled, and a great shaking of the earth came on. Hades, lord over the perished dead, trembled, and the Titans under Tarsus, who lived beside Kronos, trembled. Zeus struck Typhon with his thunderbolt, setting fire to the dreaded monster. Typhon crashed, and the earth groaned beneath him, and his flames ran out along the steep forests of the mountains. A great part of the earth burned in the thunderous wind of his heat, so earth melted in the flash of the blazing fire. The Thirteenth Guardian Chapter 1 Rome, August 5th, 1045 a.m., Central European Time. 
On a busy Tuesday morning, the road repair crew from the Ministry of Infrastructure and Transportation had blocked off Corso Vittorio Emanuel and Viale di Trastevere for emergency repairs after the melted tarmac on sections of the road started to stick to the wheels of motorist cars. It had been a normal summer until a week ago when suddenly an intense heat wave descended over most of Europe. The temperatures rose to more than 118 degrees and stayed uncharacteristically high day and night. The President of Italy, as did most other heads of state in Europe, had to declare a state of emergency and deploy the National Republican Guard to protect citizens from the intense heat. Hospital systems in Rome were overwhelmed as many people suffered from heat stroke, and the morgue filled up with bodies of the elderly who had succumbed to the deadly heat. As Eli Merrick walked up Via della Conciliazione from his small apartment a few blocks down the street, he noticed that many tourists, shopkeepers, and locals were streaming out of the shops and restaurants. He initially paid it no mind, but it soon became difficult for him to navigate the sea of people at the brisk pace that he was used to. He peeked into one of the storefronts and noticed that it was unusually dark. All the interior lights were off. Further down the street, he glanced into his favorite cafe and overheard the owner screaming at the waitstaff to keep working despite the fact that they had no electricity. The owner was furious that he was going to have to throw out the fresh batch of gelato that he made that morning. Eli pulled out his iPhone and went to La Repubblica's website. The lead story confirmed what he was seeing around him. All of Rome had indeed lost electricity. He finally got to the Vatican Museum in the northern corner of Vatican City, where he had a summer job in the Department of Restoration. None of the security scanners and metal detectors at the main entrance were working. That was surprising to Eli, because he assumed that the Vatican, a self-sufficient stand-alone city-state, would have its own power supply and backup generators. As he walked across the courtyard of St. Damasco in the Apostolic Palace, he noticed that security and the maintenance crew were talking hurriedly in one of the side offices with concerned looks on their faces. Eli called out to one of his friends, Hamza, in security, who happened to be from Bosnia and Herzegovina, which neighbored his native Croatia. Buongiorno, Hamza! Eli shouted across the entryway. What's all the ruckus? Everyone seems to be running around scared. I know the lights are out, but it's the Vatican. We have backups, don't we? Hi, Eli. Yes, any time we lose power, the backup generator facility automatically kicks in, and no one notices the changeover. This is different. We do not know what is going on. Hamza's two-way radio squawked with the angry voice of his boss, barking orders at the security staff. Hamza turned down the volume with an exasperated look in his eyes. The backup is down as well. It must have been stretched too far over the last week because of the heat. I think it's gone kaput. We are all frantically trying to sort everything out. Sensing that Hamza was eager to get back to managing the crisis around them, Eli bid his friend farewell and continued on his way to his small office in the basement of the Vatican Museum where he had a brand new project waiting for him. At the tender age of 18, Eli was absolutely thrilled to have a job in the heart of the Catholic Church within shouting distance of the Pope and the Sistine Chapel. In his new role as a summer apprentice in the Department of Restoration, Eli was tasked 
as an understudy to help restore old religious texts from around the world and get them ready for storage in the Vatican's secret archives. Late last week, his boss, Padre Vincenze, summoned Eli to his office, a very unusual thing for him to do, and asked him to close the door behind him. A few moments later, the Secretary of State, Cardinal Tedeschi, walked into the room along with the theologian of the pontifical household. Eli had only been at the Vatican for a few weeks and did not know everyone by name, but he sensed from how they carried themselves that the two men wielded a considerable amount of gravitas within the walls of the Vatican. Without much formality, Eli was directed to a crate that sat on a long table in the back of his boss's office. The crate had just been shipped in from an overseas location. It appeared to have both Hebrew and Arabic markings on it. All the customs forms were neatly stapled on the side of the crate next to a big red fragile sign stamped diagonally across it. The crate was still sealed, and Eli's boss told him that he wanted him there for the unveiling. When Eli asked what was in the box, Cardinal Tedeschi smiled politely and told him to be patient. Eli complied. Eli watched as the group of three men meticulously opened the crate and pulled out a smaller box made of a strange reddish-brown wood. The box looked to be hundreds of years old. They opened it and unrolled a parchment that had peculiar writing on it. Eli craned his neck in an effort to read what was on it, but it was in a dialect he was not familiar with. The theologian of the pontifical household stepped forward, took out his reading glasses, and studied the parchment quietly for several long minutes. There was complete silence, and the two other gentlemen looked very intently at the theologian as he studied the parchment. Finally, with a deliberate flick of his wrist, he took off his glasses and put them in his left breast pocket. He looked at the two men and declared triumphantly, "'This is it! We finally have it back in our possession!' Cardinal Tedeschi let out an audible sigh of relief, and Padre Vincenze clasped his hands tightly together and looked upwards in grateful prayer. The three men seemed to be more relieved than excited about the news, which Eli thought was odd. Eli blurted out, "'What is it?' Padre Vincenze purposefully looked at Eli and said, a few thousand years ago, after the Exodus, God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments. Moses presented the commandments to the Israelites and later put the stone tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. What no one knows is that the stone tablets were first wrapped in a piece of cloth before they were placed in the Ark. That piece of cloth, as a result of the elements and passage of time, got a perfect imprint of the actual stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. Over the years, before the ark disappeared, the Israelites removed that piece of cloth and hid it away. And today, although the world still does not know the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant and the stone tablets on which God's commandments were written, we now have possession of the sacred cloth that protected the Ten Commandments for millennia. What you are looking at is the original imprint of the Word of God, as it was etched by the very hand of Moses. Eli could barely breathe as he listened to Padre Vincenze describe the history of the cloth. 
He took it all in as he thought about all the times he imagined himself going on exciting adventures around the world to discover ancient religious artifacts. Padre Vincenze studied Eli carefully as he spoke. He was impressed that Eli recognized the sheer magnitude of the moment. It was evident to Padre Vincenze that Eli was a student of religion who knew when he was in the presence of divine history. From the first day they met a couple of months earlier, Padre Vincenze was struck by Eli and how smart and inquisitive he was about the religious topics they discussed. Eli was an intent listener and incredibly well-read. Decades earlier, Padre Vincenze had worked closely with the Pope when the Pope was a young bishop in Portugal, and every time Padre Vincenze interacted with Eli, he was astounded by how similar the two were, down to several unconscious mannerisms, like Eli putting his right palm to his heart whenever he laughed out loud. Padre Vincenze found that during their frequent interactions over the last few weeks, he could not help but think to himself, this young man is going to be Pope one day. Eli's new project was to restore the sacred cloth that once wrapped the tablets of the Ten Commandments and prepare it for display in St. Peter's Basilica. In the lower level of the Vatican Museum, where the Department of Restoration's labs were housed, Eli signaled to the two lab technicians to turn on the ultraviolet lights so he could examine the integrity of the cloth. Eli could almost feel the sturdy hand of Moses on his shoulder, guiding him as he inspected the sacred relic through the LED magnifier lamp. The time in Rome was 1.15 p.m. Airspace over the Mariana Islands, August 5, 10.15 p.m., tomorrow Standard Time. Kalia Bennett was on a flight back to Tokyo from Sydney. She was on her way home after spending a few weeks with her dad in northern Australia. Kalia's parents got divorced when she was five years old. When her parents initially separated, her dad left Japan and returned to Australia. Her parents met in Japan, her mom's homeland, and quickly got married. But after a few years, her dad wanted to return to his old life as a tour guide, enjoying the vast openness of the Australian outback. Kalia's mother, however, wanted to continue to teach in Tokyo. Kalia's mom always believed that her daughter had more of her dad in her than she cared to admit. Kalia had her dad's intense, fiery brown eyes and strawberry blonde hair, which she wore in a short mohawk. At fifteen, she'd gotten a nose ring and her first of many tattoos. Her mom was furious when she walked into the bathroom as Kalia was getting out of the shower and discovered the tattoo running down the side of her right hip, a winged unicorn with a ball and chain around its feet. As her mom glared at the artwork on her teenager's hip in anger, she could not help but wonder what her daughter was trying to express. It was a moment of anguish that her mom would never forget. At fifteen, Kalia became distant and stopped sharing much of what she was thinking about and struggling with. In her mom's eyes, the sweet little girl she had always loved and adored had disappeared, and instead a rebel had emerged. Trouble seemed to find a way of following Kalia everywhere she went. In her primary school years, she got expelled a few times because of her knack of getting into fights with other children and talking back to teachers. 
Many of the boys in her high school thought Kalia was stunningly beautiful, but none could hold her intense gaze whenever she looked them in the eye. She had a quality in her fiery brown eyes that felt like she was looking right into your soul. For the average sixteen-year-old boy, it was too much to handle. So most of the high school boys admired her from a distance, and many of the girls hated that she was so strikingly beautiful with a natural, mysterious allure that they all wished they had. Kalia dropped out of high school two years ago, determined to travel the world and experience the outdoors and find her truth. Kalia's mom raised her as a single parent, not involving her father for many years. It was not until Kalia got into high school that she had her first chance to spend time with her dad. Every year since, she traveled to Australia for two months. Kalia and her dad would explore the outback together, something she had grown to love. Kalia's many trips down under had earned her enough airline miles to qualify for a free upgrade to business class on this particular flight. She was thrilled. She usually had to hunt for the cheapest tickets on sale for her trips, and that meant she frequently got the worst seats in the back of the plane. Today's flight was going to be a ten-hour trip, and Kalia was looking forward to getting a few hours of sleep on the fully reclining seats. The flight attendants absolutely loved her. They rarely got the pleasure of interacting with a passenger with so much spunk and personality in business class. Six hours in, she was just done watching her second movie and took a quick glance out the window before turning into sleep. The route north from Sydney over eastern Australia, Papua New Guinea, Guam, and on to Japan was typically a smooth ride over the Pacific, and tonight was no exception. There were no clouds in the sky, and the stars were clearly visible through the window of the Qantas A380. Kalia stared into the distance and envisioned her next getaway, which she hoped would be an Alaskan cruise. She had always dreamed of hiking a glacier and visiting Denali National Park. As she drifted to sleep, she could not help but notice that the flight attendants were hurriedly walking up and down the cabin picking up loose items from everyone's individual nooks. She had flown thousands of miles and knew that when this happened, it probably meant there was some bumpy air ahead. The pilot came on the PA system. Hi, folks. This is your captain. Sorry to wake you. I've just turned on the seatbelt sign. We've been notified by air traffic control that things might get a little choppy in a few minutes. They're telling us the turbulence will be moderate, so we've asked the flight attendants to pick everything up in the cabin and remain seated for their safety. Nothing to be alarmed about, and I don't anticipate that it will last more than a few minutes. There was a sudden and violent downward lurch that turned the plane dangerously sideways. Because the PA system was on, the passengers heard the pilots gasp in horror. The A380, the world's largest passenger airliner, went into a steep dive and continued to shake violently. Anything that was not secured was thrust upward and slammed into the roof of the plane's cabin. Kalia woke up as her head smashed into the window of the plane. The pain was blinding. As she heard the loud screams around her, it took her a moment to regain her bearings. As soon as she realized what was happening and heard the panic in everyone's voice, she opened her window shade. Expecting to see a storm around the plane, she was surprised to see that the night was completely clear. Yet the lurching of the plane seemed to get worse as the minutes went by. The A380's four Rolls-Royce engines roared as the pilots labored to maintain control of the aircraft, 
which was now shaking furiously from right to left. The pilots did their best to keep the passengers calm through the ordeal, but the look of sheer terror in the eyes of the flight attendants did not give Kalia any comfort. It was the worst turbulence Kalia had ever experienced. After what felt like an eternity, the pilots regained control, and the plane was forced to make an emergency landing in the Philippines to assess any structural damage to the aircraft. Many of the passengers were seriously injured from the violent turbulence. As they pulled up to their gate, the captain made an announcement, asking that everyone wait in their seats while the ground emergency crew came on board to wheel out an elderly couple that appeared to be unconscious and bleeding heavily. As the rest of the passengers eventually walked off the plane in Manila, they were all shaken up, but glad to be alive. The captain and first officer stood at the doorway of the plane and gave the exiting passengers a reassuring hug or handshake. The two pilots were ashen as they tried to conceal their relief as to be safely on the ground after a grueling thirty minutes flying through the extreme weather anomaly. Kalia looked around for an airport official. She sensed that there was something abnormal about the severe turbulence they had just flown through and was keen to gather whatever information she could. Savvy on how to extract information in certain parts of the world, she parted with a few dollars and got one of the local staff in the airport terminal to talk. What they had just experienced was a sudden collapse of the jet stream, something that rarely happens, but when it does, wreaks havoc on weather patterns in the surrounding area. What Kalia did not know at the time was that multiple jet streams were collapsing around the globe simultaneously. The collapses were causing severe turbulence along several high-traffic air routes. The phenomenon also spawned raging floods in some parts of the world, and extreme heat waves, apocalyptic cloud formations, and hurricane-force winds in other areas. Kalia stood by the large windows in the terminal and looked out at the A380 that they had just disembarked. From her perch, she watched as the flight crew walked off the rear door of the plane and onto a waiting shuttle bus on the tarmac. The captain was comforting two of the flight attendants who were still in tears. Washington, D.C., August 5th, 8.15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Remy Astor had recently graduated from Yale and was one of the fortunate few political science majors in his class to land a job on the hill straight out of school. He was raised in the Bay Area and his parents had made a modest amount of money when they sold their technology company a few years earlier. His parents had both grown up poor in the rural Midwest and had overcome insurmountable odds in their journey to becoming entrepreneurs. They had bootstrapped their way to success and desperately wanted to provide for Remy, their only child, to make sure that he did not have as tough a life as they did. So when Remy was in his senior year, his mom, who over the years had made substantial donations to several candidates in Washington, pulled some strings and got Remy a few interviews on Capitol Hill. Remy's raw smarts did the rest. He had his first job offer within a week. It did not hurt that he was a star quarterback of the Yale football team, with a requisite muscular athletic build, chiseled good looks, and brash confidence. Each time he left the congressional offices where he interviewed, the female staffers whispered to each other with excited anticipation, hoping that he would get the job. One young married congresswoman from Florida, with more than a hint of impropriety in her eyes, came just short of guaranteeing Remy that she would personally see to it that he has a successful political career 
if he came to work in her office. It was a typical humid Washington morning, and Remy was fumbling through his backpack trying to find his car keys. He was running late for his first meeting with the Speaker of the House on Capitol Hill. Since he was brand new to his job as a staffer in the Speaker's office, he needed to make a great impression with the third person in line to the Presidency of the United States. As Remy stood in the parking garage looking for his keys, he remembered that he could open his Tesla and drive off with a mere click of a button in the Tesla's mobile app. His mom had bought him the car as a graduation gift. He smiled as he pulled out his phone. It's great to be alive in the 21st century when you no longer need a key to drive your car. He unlocked his car, and as he was about to put away his phone, he noticed a headline from the Associated Press pop up on his home screen. The AP was reporting that there was a 20-foot-wide crack hundreds of yards long that had opened up in Kenya. The crack was similar to large crevices that had suddenly appeared in the Middle East, Mexico, and Australia just two weeks earlier. The local Kenyan press assured the public that the cracks were caused by the heavy seasonal rains, but when Remy clicked on the link in the headline, the image that stared back at him gave him a chill. While he wasn't an expert, he had taken a geology class at Yale. As he studied the images on his smartphone, it appeared that the ground in Kenya, and in some other parts of the world, was literally splitting open like something was pulling the ground apart. He had never seen anything like it before. The thought did not last long. He had to get onto Constitution Avenue, fight the odious Washington, D.C. traffic, and race up toward Capitol Hill for his meeting. As he pulled into the U.S. Capitol building, Remy felt a tangible sense of destiny about his life. As an only child, his parents had impressed upon him that he could accomplish anything and he would do great things with his life. Unlike his parents, who both loved to build technology products, Remy felt that his calling was in changing the lives of others through politics and policy. And this meeting with the Speaker of the House felt like a pivotal moment for him. He hurried into his small office and got himself set up as the rest of the group walked into the adjacent conference room. His office was cluttered with reams of paper from legislation that he had to get up to speed on, and several laptops in need of repairs piled one on top of the other. Despite the fact that he was not interested in technology, Remy had a knack for fixing things around the office when they broke. He handled repairing wireless routers, connecting printers to the office network, managing IP address issues, and many other tech things that most of his co-workers only periodically read about on their favorite tech blog. He also dabbled in writing code and building apps with some of his college friends as a pastime. For an athletic jock, he was quite the tech nerd. Remy quickly found a spot at the conference room table that would place him within arm's reach of the speaker, who walked in moments later. As the meeting started, Speaker Phil Davidson indicated that he needed to change the agenda to cover a new piece of legislation that was going to be rushed through both the Senate and Congress. As a matter of high priority, they needed to get support from both sides of the aisle, and in the political climate in which they found themselves, it was going to be a miracle to pull off. He asked every junior staffer to leave the room so he could discuss the confidential details of the new law with his senior staff. Remy was crushed. This was his moment, and he'd been dismissed within a minute of the speaker walking into the room. As Remy sat at his desk in his meager office, miserable about the sudden negative turn of events, the speaker popped his head in. Hey, 
We need some help with a projector, and everyone says, you're the man. Trying to hide his excitement, Remy jumped up. Yes, sir, I am. A few minutes later, the projector was working, and since no one asked him to leave the room, Remy quietly grabbed a chair in the back of the room and said he would stick around in the event that anything broke down. The speaker did not seem to mind. The new legislation that the president was looking to pass would grant FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, sweeping powers to control all the United States armed forces in the event of a global catastrophic event. As the speaker discussed the details of the new FEMA legislation and what it would take to pass the new law, Remy could not help but wonder whether there was any connection between what he had read earlier from the Associated Press about the cracks opening up around the globe and the new legislation that the president was rushing through Congress. Yepo Kappa, Guatemala, August 5th, 7.15 a.m. Central Standard Time. Sixty miles west of Guatemala City, Guatemala, Avery Fitzgerald was startled awake by the loud shriek of a local siren system. She looked at the clock on her phone and cursed out loud. She had only been asleep for three hours, and it took her a minute or two to remember where she was. She had been backpacking over the last month through Latin America with her college basketball team and had arrived at Yepocapa two days ago after spending five days hiking up the Andes Mountains to Machu Picchu in Peru. She crawled out of the tent she was sharing with a teammate to see what was causing all the commotion. There was a light fog floating half a foot above the ground that gave the area a haunted aura. Hiking guides were hastily collecting all the group's belongings and packing up as quickly as they could. They had a look of terror in their eyes that Avery immediately locked in on. She rushed over to the head guide and asked what was happening. The guide replied with horror in her voice, El Fuego is alive, and scurried away, collecting anything she could as she ran off. As the sirens continued to blare around her, Avery was able to find a few more of her teammates, and together they tried to figure out what the tour guide had meant. The group had come to hike Fuego Mountain as part of their weeks-long tour of Latin America. El Fuego, as the locals called the mountain, had not had a major eruption in hundreds of years. But as the group got to their camp two days earlier, the locals were buzzing about strange, loud trumpet sounds from the sky just a few days before. The locals thought these trumpet sounds were precursors to an eruption. But the basketball team's hiking guides reassured them that those were just local superstitions. After the team settled into their tents two nights earlier, Avery, who had been intrigued by the superstitions, looked it up online. To her surprise, there were many people around the world who had posted videos of loud trumpet booms coming from the sky. As she listened through her earphones, she felt an instant sense of foreboding. The booming trumpet horns summoned a fear deep inside her that she did not understand. Many reported these sounds to their local law enforcement officials, but no one had been able to come up with an answer for the source of the eerie sounds. There were numerous news broadcasts from as far away as Canada, Europe, and the Middle East, covering the global phenomenon, but none of them arrived at a plausible explanation. Some online conspiracy theorists suggested that the apocalyptic roars were precursors to a global event. Avery considered herself a scientist and did not buy into any superstitions, 
but she did find it odd that the locals in Yepocapa, Guatemala, said that they had heard the same trumpet sound from the sky that she listened to online. The sounds had a haunting quality about them, and everyone online reported that they emanated from the sky. There had to be a logical explanation. As Avery and her teammates hurriedly gathered their belongings, a large explosion roared behind them. They whirled around in time to see the unmistakable red glow on the summit of El Fuego as the volcano erupted with a huge cloud of debris shooting miles into the sky. Everyone watched in horror as the scene unfolded, unable to move or react. The ash cloud billowed skyward, falling back to earth in every direction. As everyone at camp stared in wonder and horror, it quickly became apparent that they were right in the path of the pyroclastic flow, and that in less than two or three minutes they would be incinerated. Instinct and sheer panic kicked in as everyone dropped all their belongings and scrambled to the trucks and vans that were on the campgrounds. There was no time to account for every member of the group. Everyone was on their own, running in every direction to save themselves. Avery was able to dive into the back of a truck with barely anyone in it that was accelerating out of the campground. She was lucky not to have knocked herself unconscious when she landed on the bed of the truck, and a flying spare wheel zipped by her head and bounced off the rear gate of the truck. As the truck raced away, she could only look back in horror and hope that all her teammates were able to get into one of the vehicles. The driver of the truck she found herself in kept screaming through the rear sliding window that the volcano should not be erupting. He did not understand why the quiet mountain had suddenly woken up with a furious rage of molten rock. This prompted Avery to pull out her iPhone as they bounced dangerously on the uneven road to search for the history of the volcano. Avery was alarmed to find news articles from Iceland, Africa, the Pacific Ocean, South America, and other locations around the world reporting spontaneous eruptions of volcanoes, many of which had been dormant for centuries. She turned to the driver of the truck and said dreadfully, "'Volcanoes are blowing all over the world!' "'Why?' the driver glanced her way. She shrugged and stared up at El Fuego, asking herself the same question. And here's a special behind-the-scenes look with the author K.M. Lewis. Connect with the author at 13thGuardian.com. The 13th Guardian is a fast-paced novel with lots of twists and turns and a ton of drama that escalates as the story progresses. And I wanted to drop the reader right into the action from the very beginning. For Avery, Eli, Galia, and Remy, their fairly normal lives as a college basketball player, a summer apprentice at the Vatican, a teenage globetrotter, and a low-level staffer in the office of the Speaker deteriorate rapidly. Their separate and tumultuous experiences will ultimately prove to be deeply connected and will force their paths to converge. Eli and Remy both play a pivotal role as the story unfolds and you will grow to love them or maybe even hate them. Remy represents much of what one might expect of a privileged, Ivy League-educated recent graduate. He's fresh on Capitol Hill, and although he is a low-level staffer in the office of the Speaker, he's got his own political ambitions. Unexpected events thrust him closer to realizing those aspirations. 
Eli has a very direct connection to one of the most, if not the most powerful seats in global religion. As a fresh apprentice at the Vatican, he's confronted by the heavy sense of intrigue and secrecy that shrouds St. Peter's Basilica and the Sistine Chapel. As he is brought into the fold by powerful confidants of the Pope, he begins to realize that thousand-year-old mysteries are buried deep within the walls of the Vatican and catacombs beneath them. His humble desire to follow his passion for religion is in stark contrast to the carefully orchestrated authoritative force that is the church that he serves. Ultimately, the 13th Guardian Trilogy is really about Avery. It's exciting to build out the elements of the story that frame the powerful figure she eventually becomes, and it's only after everything unfolds in this first book of the trilogy that we begin to appreciate Avery's magnitude and importance.